I don't ever do this. And most of the time when I'm talking to a young man who, uh, who is uh, maybe thinking about uh, becoming a Bible teacher or, or a preacher of God's Word in pastoral ministry, most of the time I tell them, if your sermon involves any kind of a prop, go ahead and stop and start all over. I don't usually do props in, in preaching, but today I broke, I broke one of my cardinal rules and I, I wore a prop. I'm wearing a t-shirt today that says, families don't have to match. Um, it's a nice t-shirt, t-shirt, it fits well, and, um, and it's comfortable, but it also suits a purpose this morning. Uh, it's a shirt that my wife bought, she has a matching one too. She asked me if it would be okay if she wore hers today, and I said, babe, that's probably a little bit too far. People are going to think you dress me every day, and... You know what? We probably all would be better for it if she did. But so she bought a shirt for herself. She bought one for me. It was part of a fundraiser that some friends of ours were doing to facilitate the raising of funds for families that were fostering and adopting children. And the idea of families don't have to match is, is right there at the heart of foster care and adoption, isn't it? This idea that family, the bond of family goes beyond uh, blood relation. It's, it, it can be broader than uh, uh, sharing genetic material with other people that are in the same home as you. Family can extend beyond those things. Family is, is more than just relations by blood. Family is also relations of, of commitment, mutual commitment and care for one another. Paul, the apostle especially, likes to use this idea of adoption when he speaks about a part of the effect of our salvation, of our being brought to a right relationship with God. When Paul talks about adoption in Scripture, he's talking about uh, being, becoming a part of a family that doesn't necessarily match, but is held together by bonds deeper than blood. The main idea of our time in God's Word this morning from Galatians 4 is this, adoption when we think about it in the, in, in the, in the uh, perspective of salvation, adoption is the commitment by God to add to his spiritual family those who belong to Christ by faith. Adoption is the commitment of God. This is God's desire. This is God's initiative. This is God's commitment to people to add those who are in Christ by faith to his spiritual family, to a family with bonds that are deeper and even go further and last longer uh, than blood relation bonds. As we see this fleshed out for us in Galatians 4 and from a couple other passages of Scripture as well, we should come to know this morning that in Christ, God provides a home and a family with bonds deeper than blood. And in light of this, we should strive to live in relationship with God and in relationship with fellow believers, our brothers and sisters, in ways that reflect this deep family bond that God creates in Christ. So let's hear from God's word then. Would you stand with me as we read Galatians 4, verses 1 through 7? The Apostle Paul there writes to his friends in the churches of Galatia. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. 
So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is God's word. You may be seated. Adoption in the context of salvation is a commitment that God makes to add to his spiritual family all of those who belong to Christ by faith. As we come to Galatians 4, uh, you may be thinking, I, I need the bigger picture here. Paul's here in the middle of an argument. I need some more context. And you're right, you do. This passage of Galatians uh, comes in, in, in Paul's letter to a number of churches in the region of Galatia, uh, part of Asia Minor today. And it comes in the broader context of his discussion, Paul's discourse on the function of the Mosaic law prior to Christ's incarnation and the gospel call to trust in Jesus. Paul goes on earlier in Galatians to ask if Christ does away with the ritual and ceremonial aspects of the law, of the Mosaic law from Genesis through Deuteronomy, Paul asks, then why do we need the law in the, in the first place? If God is just going to call it obsolete, why does he give it to his people anyway until Christ comes? Well, the answer is all about time and preparation. From the time that God promised Abraham, all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, that Abraham would be the father of many nations and that through Abraham the whole world would be blessed, God's people from that moment were looking forward to the offspring of Abraham, that king like David, the servant of God who would redeem his people. But until the promise would come to pass, wherein everyone who trusts Christ for salvation would be saved, God provided for his people, Israel, a way to live in relationship with him. And that way, those boundaries for relationship that God gives to his people until Christ comes is is the law. In this way, Paul explains the law was like a tutor. It was like a, a household manager that kept charge of the children of the house and saw to their education until the day when they would come into their inheritance, until the day that they were old enough to become masters of the house. And the law serves as a tutor, serves as a teacher in this way so that the children might use the inheritance, might use their mastery of the house and appreciate it with all the wisdom that they're intended to have. So the law for Jews was like this teacher, preparing them for the day when the Messiah would come so that they could embrace him with faith and embrace him as the very wisdom of God, receive him as the fulfillment of all of God's promises. So then, having said all that in the earlier parts of Galatians, when we get to the beginning of chapter 4, what Paul says, what I mean to say by all this is that. What, what, ha- having said all this, think about it this way. He says, I mean that children are no different than slaves in a home so long as they are under guardians. Children are no, uh, and here's the kicker, friends. Even those of us who are Gentiles were enslaved, Paul says. We're enslaved to something. We're enslaved to the law. We're enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, these spiritual powers and false religions that demand our service without giving anything in return, no care for our souls as we worship these things. And so it is this very desperate situation, spiritual situation, that Paul brings good news here in Galatians chapter 4. When the fullness of time had come, verse 4 as he says, that is, at the very moment in human history that God had planned from eternity past, when everything was just right according to God's plan, Christ came. 
He was born of a virgin. He lived a life under the same law that we live under, but without sin. And he died on a cross as a sacrifice for sinners for the purpose of saving from sin everyone who would place their trust in him. And, Paul says, Christ came at the fullness of time to do all these things, not only to save us from sin and bring us forgiveness, but also for the purpose of God's adoption of those believing persons into his family. God sends Christ to die for sins, to be raised again, so that all who trust in him would, yes, be forgiven of sin, would, yes, be justified to God, would, yes, have the promise of eternal life, but more so would be adopted as children of God. So as Paul lays out this case, and he makes it very clear for us in Galatians chapter 4, we have to ask the question, what is the meaning of, of being adopted by God? What's the meaning of adoption by God? What is it that Paul is implying and saying here? Well, adoption in the biblical sense of God adopting people into his family is actually rather different from adoption as it was practiced in the ancient Roman world. In Rome, there were several different kinds of adoption, different ways to adopt people into your family, but most all of them had to do with bringing someone who was not a part of your, it was called the paterfamilias, the, the kind of the family unit, bringing someone from another family unit into your family unit so that they could receive your inheritance. They became legal heirs. That's really basically all that adoption was for in the ancient Roman world. Rarely, if ever, do we see people in Rome actually adopting orphans into their family to become a part of their family because they just love and want to care for an orphan. Most of the time, adoption was, and it was certainly practiced by Roman emperors who, because of the process of inbreeding and that sort of thing, were often unable to have children of their own. They would adopt someone from a similar social status into their paterfamilias, so to speak, so that they would be the emperor when they died because they had no children who could take the throne. And the same thing happened in other strata of society. You would adopt someone from outside of your family just to become the inheritor of your estate. It was purely a legal thing. Now, these forms of adoption in Paul's day were helpful to his illustration of God adopting people into his family because all these ideas of adoption imply legal standing as heirs to an estate as the rightful inheritors of all that the, the father leaves behind. In this way, adoption, like justification, like we saw a couple of weeks ago, has a forensic nature. It has a, a legal overtone. When God adopts people into his family, he is declaring legally that those who trust Christ are part of his family, even though their family of first origin is from somewhere else. This implies an important point for us. Don't miss it. Because Paul says that Christ died so that we may no longer be slaves, but sons, and if sons, then heirs. Here's the truth that you must realize this morning. Friend, you must be adopted into God's family. You must be adopted from outside his family into his family to be a part of it. Paul talks about believers here being previously enslaved to other spiritual commitments. We're enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul says that when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What this means for us is that we are, bo- we are not born as children of God. We are not born as children of God. 
I'll say it one more time for theological clarity. We are not born as children of God. We are not born into God's family as rightful inheritors of his estate. If we are to be in God's family, we must be adopted by him. We are born with sinful natures to become sinners, to receive the righteous and just wrath of God. If we are to be a part of God's family, we must be grafted in. We must be brought in from outside. Now, the very good news, friends, of the gospel is this, so don't miss it. The bad news is, right, you are not born a child of God. The good news is God wants a big, fat, diverse family. So much so does God want a big, fat, diverse family that he has declared that anyone whose faith for forgiveness, whose trust for justification to God is in his son, Jesus Christ, that that one will be adopted into his big, fat, diverse family. Now, because God is the one who adopts, he's the one who sets the terms. He's the one who initiates the adoption. And the terms for adoption into his family are these. Turn from your sin the sin that enslaves you, and placed all, place all your trust in the person of Jesus as Lord of your life. Those are the terms for adoption. Turn from sin, trust in Jesus, the only Son of God. To be adopted into God's family, then, it conveys this idea of a change in status. You move from one family to another. You, you move from being the inheritor, the rightful recipient of God's wrath, to now being the rightful recipient of all the things that a son receives. We're no longer slaves when we've been adopted by God, but now sons. We're no longer the recipients of God's wrath against sin, but now recipients of his kingdom with Christ. This is good news. Friends, understand this. You are not born into the family of God, but you may be adopted in. If only you turn from sin and trust in Christ. This is the wonderful, wonderful news and declaration of the gospel. There is, when God adopts children, adopts people into his family, a legal declaration. You are now my son. You are now my daughter. I will treat you as my son or as my daughter. There are all of these legal implications to adoption. It's forensic in nature. But adoption in the biblical sense, in the sense pertaining to our salvation, is not just legal, friends. It's also loving. And this is where adoption by God into his family differs entirely from the idea of adoption in the ancient Roman world. It's important to note, yes, that there is this legal aspect of adoption, that that bit where God declares we are his children and that we will be treated as such. But it is equally important for us to recognize that adoption into God's family is motivated by God's love for us, his compassion for us, that word agape, his, his steadfast covenantal love that, that Brother Tom uh, exposited for us la- last week, because of God's agape toward us, he brings us into his family. God does not adopt those friends that he does not love with the intent of learning to love them. No, he adopts those whom he has already loved in Christ with the intent of growing in depth of relationship and intimacy with them. The Greek word that Paul uses for adoption has as its root the word for son. That's why it's translated here in Galatians 4 verse, um, uh, uh, verse 5, adoption as sons. 
It's almost like Paul is intentionally underlining the loving relationship that undergirds adoption. This isn't just about bringing in a new heir. This is about establishing a new relationship of father to son, father to daughter. Paul wants to be sure that the church understands that this is more than just God adding heirs to his will. He's adding children to his family through Christ. And it is his love toward us, his agape toward us in Christ that we must not miss, that we must be sure that we see. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, Paul writes these words. In love, God predestined us for adoption to himself through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. In love, he predestined us for adoption. So there we, we go back all the way to the beginning of this series where we talked about predestination and election. But we see in Ephesians 1, election, God's choosing of, uh, uh, to, to save those who trust in Christ is a matter of love unto adoption as sons. God loves us with the purpose of bringing us into his family. And the exclusive is also true. Adoption does not come apart from God's love in Christ. There is no way in which God adopts in an unloving way people into his family. Everyone that God adopts into his family through faith in Jesus Christ, he adopts in love. Also, God's love toward the world of sinners is shown in the gift of His Son, Jesus, so that any who believe will have eternal life, as we saw several weeks ago from John 3.16. And as John says in his gospel in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, to all who did receive Him, to all who received the Son, who believed in His name, God gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. In this way, God loves people. He loves sinners by sending Christ to call people to trust Him as the sacrifice for their sins. And then God in His love adopts those who have believed in the manifest display of His love for sinful humans, His Son. All of this is about God's undying, unyielding love for sinners who have spurned His name. But the loving nature of adoption is also evident in the reality that believers, those who trust in Jesus, they are loved by God, yes, loved by God deeply, but in being adopted, they're also being enfolded into a new family. When, when we adopted our son, Kai, he became our son, and he became the brother of our three girls. There's a whole new family dynamic taking place there. He's been enfolded into a new family. Now, of course, as God adopts us into his spiritual family, this doesn't dissolve other bonds of human kinship. It doesn't mean that when you become a believer, when you become a Christian, all of a sudden your only family is other Christians and your mom and your dad and your brothers and sisters and cousins, if they weren't believers, don't matter anymore. That's not, that's not the case. But when you are enfolded into God's family through faith in Jesus, it does create new bonds of spiritual relation that will outlast our our bonds of blood relation in life. We're brought into a family that lasts longer, that goes deeper than even our blood kinship. Because we are adopted by God when we trust Christ, we can rightly call one another brother and sister. These aren't just like silly throwaway terms that we use in polite conversation with other Christians. Brother and sister are are real titles, real designation of relationship that we have with other Christians. 
And among God's global family of believers, understand this, it is true that we have more in common with our Christian brothers and sisters in sub-Saharan Africa and in India than we do with our non-believing neighbors who look like us and sound like us and eat like us. We have in common with them kinship in God's eternal family. Even though we may not share with them the same family of origin, we share with them the same family of destination. It's a family that will not be torn asunder by death. The family that God adopts us into by Christ is a family that will never forsake one of its own. It's a family that cares for one another, shows up when they are hurting, encourages them to press on, and does not shy away from hard family conversations when they're necessary. Consider too, dear brothers and sisters, and I mean that seriously, not as a throwaway, that you have more in common and you have a deeper bond with the saints in this room than you do your own family members who do not know Christ. You have more in common with the brothers and sisters, with the fellow Christians in this room, ultimately and finally, than you do with your own blood kin who don't know Christ as well. The question for us Christians, in light of this reality, is whether or not, as the church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ, the family of God, is whether we want to live like that's true or not. If it's true that our bond in Christ is deeper and is more profound than any other bond among human beings on earth, then it means for us that there is no room ever for racism or any form of ethnic or social superiority in the body of Christ. We've all come empty-handed into this family by the loving initiative of God. He has brought us here. We all arrived by faith, and we are not commended by our works, much less our skin color or our nation of origin. So if we are all brothers and sisters in Christ, those of us who know Him, there's no place for racial or ethnic or social superiority. It means, second that we have family responsibility to our brothers and sisters. That we don't just use those terms, brother and sister, as throwaway. It's not just something we use in polite conversation, but we, we, we use those words meaningfully, intentionally. I have one sister uh, by family, younger than me, and uh, I'll always be sure to have her know that. And we have a close bond, my sister and I. We didn't used to. We used to, we used to fight a lot. Uh, We did not treat, my dad says, amen. We did not treat each other like brother and sister very well. But as we grew older and our relationship matured and I realized she's not so bad after all, uh, we we really did develop like a, a, a deep friendship. I have responsibilities to my sister responsibilities that I, that I feel. Now, no, nobody has told me that these are what they are. They're not written down anywhere. Uh, I've not been commanded by the law or anything like that, but I have a certain sense of, of responsibility for my sister to make sure that she's okay, to make sure that she's doing well, to make sure that she has needs that I can meet that I do, to ensure that I know what's going on in her life and to know how I can pray for her and pray with her and encourage her in her walk with Christ and encourage her even in her career and other things like that. I have responsibility to my sister, but none of these things are written down and yet I feel it. On the other side of things in God's family, friends, we have responsibility to our brothers and sisters, but far more clear than the responsibilities that we have to our blood kinship. We have responsibilities in God's word that are written down 
all of the one another's that occur all throughout the, the New Testament. The love we're supposed to have for one another, the submission that we're supposed to display for each other, the care and support and camaraderie and prayer that we're supposed to engage in with one another. These things are clearly said by God because he desires for his family to to fulfill certain responsibilities to one another. Because we're brothers and sisters, we have family responsibility. But third, it also means that we as brothers and sisters in Christ, not just with the saints in this room, but with the saints gathered in rooms together all around the world today, because we have that deep family bond with them as brothers and sisters, we reject any and every form of competition or turf warfare with other churches. Is it not ridiculous how often we see churches fighting over this corner or this neighborhood? I, I've heard stories recently of, of large churches that, that are about to send out someone to start a, a new church or a new campus of their church, but they set restrictions around what neighborhoods they can plant that new church in because we're already here doing this thing. Non-compete clauses with new church planters. It is ridiculous. Friends, because we're brothers and sisters with the fellow saints at Engage, at, at uh, Refuge Church and at Vertical Church right here, at Albuquerque's First Baptist Church up the road, at Sandia Church and Hoffmantown Church, and, and even at Calvary and so many other churches that believe the gospel that we do, we reject every form of competition or turf warfare, like somehow we've got the corner on the gospel here in Albuquerque. These are our brothers and sisters that we're doing family work alongside to extend the family, to grow the family. And if God is working to grow his family in another church that isn't ours through the work that they're doing, through the evangelism that they're engaged in, through their disciple-making efforts, we're going to celebrate that because our brothers and sisters are doing well. The meaning of adoption is that we must be brought in. You must be adopted by God. You're not born into his family. It doesn't come to you by family right or, or, or genealogical lineage. You must be adopted in through faith in Christ. And as you're adopted into his family, you're brought into a, a whole new family with all kinds of deeper bonds, bonds of love that God has initiated, that God has begun through Christ, that he extends to us. And then we are meant to extend to others as well. What about the effects of adoption? We're we're adopted into God's family. What does that do for us? What does it do in us? As the passage goes on here in Galatians 4, there are two clear effects. There are two clear results that I see of being adopted by God. First of all, we receive the Holy Spirit. Paul says in verse 6, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. And we know from places like Acts chapter 2, where Peter preaches the first Christian sermon on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, that when someone comes to faith in Christ, they receive the Holy Spirit of God, God's promise to them to dwell in them, to empower them for Christian living and for mission. And this is so because at the moment of faith, God declares we are his children, and the notarizing seal of that adoption is his spirit in the life of the believer. Uh, last week, I, I read from a portion of our decree of adoption for our son, Kai, and I didn't show it to you, but at the bottom of that page, there's a, a notary seal. There's a seal of a witness to these court proceedings, to these legal proceedings to, to say, yes, this really did happen. This really is real. God's notarizing seal of, of his adopting us into his family 
the witness of this saving work that has taken place is His Holy Spirit dwelling in us. But do not overlook what the Spirit does for us. It's more than just a notary seal. It's more than just a formality that says, yes, this person really is in Christ. This person really is a son or a daughter of God. More than that, the Spirit of God living in us leads us. He leads us to call on God in the most intimate of ways. He sends His Son, His Spirit to dwell in our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Now that word Abba is an Aramaic word for, for father. It's a particularly affectionate term. We probably shouldn't confuse it with the English word daddy. It's probably not quite as informal or, or whatever as that. But what Abba does mean, what Abba, that name for God as father, what it does entail is a depth and an intimacy of relationship with God as a father. As our Father, God is not far away. He's not deaf to the cries of His children. He is not blind to their pain, but in every way He is imminently near, and the Spirit leads us to call on Him that way. I don't know if you're, you're geared or built quite in the same way that, that I am by God, but I can be dead asleep in the middle of the night, and one of my kids can cry out from another room, Dad! They can even say, Mom! And I'm up like a bolt, ready to go. I'll be running down the hallway, you know, in in pitch dark, trying to find what's going on, running into all kinds of things. Because their call, their cry, brings me to action, even if I'm dead asleep. Why? Because that depth of relationship, that bond that that we have to each other, that that sense of obligation and, and duty and real love and care for my children that exists there is what drives me to wake up from a dead sleep when they cry out, Dad! The impact of the truth of God giving His Spirit to dwell in the hearts of believers is this, that because God gives His children His own Holy Spirit that leads us to cry out to Him with all of the the depth of father-child intimacy, to cry out to Him as one that we know will come running to help when we do, that, friends, we can be certain we have a truly loving and good Father in God. Because He gives us His Spirit, not not just to make formal his adoption of us as sons and daughters, but he gives us a spirit that leads us to call out to him. We can know that he really is a loving father, that he really does care for us, that he wants to be in relationship with us like a father to his children. So because, friends, one of the effects of adoption is that God gives us his Holy Spirit that leads us to cry out, Abba, Father, then understand this this morning, with the Spirit's help, Christian, you need to learn to call on God as Father. When you pray, and when we pray, Heavenly Father, our Father in Heaven, again, we shouldn't use that term, Father, as just a a placeholder, just a term of formality. No, it's a a term of intimacy. It's a term of relationship. It's, It's a term of personal knowledge. When you pray, speak to God personally. Speak to Him infinitely, uh, intimately. When we call on Him as Father, mean it. Call on Him as a Father who you know will answer your cry when you call to Him. Look to Him as the one who cares for you, who provides for you, who deeply and, 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 and seriously wants to be involved in every aspect of your life to lead and guide and direct and mature you. 
into the child of His that He wants you to be. So when you pray, our Father in heaven, when you pray, Heavenly Father, emphasize that Father part in your heart as much as you can. Bring yourself to really mean it when you say it. The Spirit will help you to do so. The first effect of our adoption is that we, we receive God's Spirit who leads us to call on Him as Father. But also, secondly, as we see in Galatians 4, one of the effects of being adopted as sons and daughters into God's family is that we look forward to an inheritance. As verse 7 of our passage clearly states, those who are in Christ are sons or daughters. And if they are sons and daughters, then they are heirs also. But heirs of what? We all know that heirs inherit something. Uh, when, their, when their father passes uh, away. Now, of course, God will not die, but he gives an inheritance to his children. Our inheritance, we know, is in God. We know our inheritance is in Christ. It's through Christ as the Son of God. So if our inheritance is in Christ, then it stands to reason that our inheritance will be similar to Christ's in some way, won't it? If we are heirs with Christ, our inheritance will look like his in some way. So what does Christ gain? What does Christ inherit as the Son of God? He inherits two things primarily, suffering and glory. Christ gains, he inherits suffering. Now, it probably strikes you as odd that suffering would be a part of an inheritance. That sounds like a terrible inheritance, part of what God gives to his children. But it's true for Jesus, isn't it? His incarnation, when Christ steps aside from his place at the right hand of the Father to be incarnated, to to add humanity to his divine existence, he was born into a world full of suffering and pain and sorrow. And Christ experienced all of these things too. He didn't shy away from them. them. He received them. He, He experienced them. And moreover, Christ suffered death on a cross so that sinners could be rescued and redeemed to God. Part of Christ's inheritance is suffering for the sake of our salvation. But the other part of his inheritance is glory. Christ was raised from the dead, we know, in a glorified body in which he lives forever. And he was raised to return to the glory that he had with God as he ascended to heaven, as we read at the end of the Gospels and the beginning of Acts. Ascending again to the glory that he had with God before his incarnation to rule and to reign over all things. So Christ inherits these two things, suffering and glory. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8, verse 17, he says, If we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. So what do we inherit as Christians who have been adopted by God? Same things that Jesus did, only in slightly different ways. Suffering and glory. Suffering is the means we, we read throughout all of, uh, much of Scripture. is the means by which God shapes and molds Christians. He shapes and molds His sons and daughters. In suffering, we are drawn to call on our Father for help with the help of His Holy Spirit that leads us to call on Him that way. In our suffering, we are meant to seek His will for our suffering. God, what are you teaching me? How are you, how are you bringing me to, to depend on you? What do I need to learn about you in this moment of hardship? In suffering, we are often brought to confess sin that sometimes leads to our suffering and then to repent of it. Suffering presses us. Hardship in life presses us to rely on what our Father provides rather than what the world can give 
and to conform our desires to His, not to be conformed to the world around us. Suffering, hardship, difficulty in life is a means that our Father uses to press us into the image, to conform us into the image of His Son, Jesus. It's part of our inheritance as Christians. But not suffering only, also glory. The glory we inherit is similar to Christ's. It's not the same as Christ's. We don't become God when we die. But like Christ, we have this promise that we will, who are in Christ by faith, be resurrected from the dead in bodies that are made perfect by the Spirit of God, in which we will live forever in the presence of God in this world made new. Glory is found in a life that is infused with the power of God forever and ever to be totally free from sin and death for all time. Paul says this about suffering and glory in Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. Listen. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them as rubbish. By the way, Paul had a lot of things that he could, he, he, he could have counted to his credit. And he says, All the things that I was, all the good things that I ever accomplished, all my status in life, garbage, rubbish. I count them all as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith so that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that I might share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, And that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That is the glory of Christ. In Christ, being adopted as sons and daughters to God, we have an inheritance to look forward to. It may not be what you expect. It's suffering, but it's also glory. Know this this morning. Suffering in Christ is the road to glory in Christ. And friend, you cannot shortcut the way to your inheritance in Jesus. If you desire to inherit glory, eternal life in this body, risen from the dead, made new and imperishable by the power of the Spirit Himself, the way to that is through suffering. First of all, through recognizing the suffering of Christ on your behalf on the cross in His death for your sins. But also in embracing difficulty, hardship, suffering in this life, Not as a means to earn God's favor, but embracing suffering as God's loving discipline. And discipline is not always punitive. Sometimes discipline is formative. We teach our kids to make their bed because it's good to make their bed, not because they're in trouble. Sometimes suffering is formative as God uses it to conform us to the image of Christ His Son. Our inheritance as sons and daughters of God through faith in Jesus is suffering and glory. And the road to glory is, is, is through suffering. So don't shortcut it. Don't shortcut it. Don't skip out. Don't skip out and try to, to soothe and, 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 and make somehow uh, less painful the suffering that you're going through. Instead, embrace it as God's intention to conform you to the image of his son and let him do that. Receive your inheritance. Friends, this morning we have seen from Scripture, and we know this truth of our salvation, that families don't have to match. 
And the most beautiful family in all the universe is one that is full of the contrast of diversity. It is God's family. A family of children who were once strangers, slaves to foreign enemies, rebels against the king, who have been given a home, who have been, brought, who have been bought back by the blood of the only divine Son of God, and who have been lovingly welcomed as sons and daughters. Friend, you who are not yet a Christian, my question to you today is what prevents you from receiving God's loving adoption as a son or a daughter today? Is it that you're unfamiliar with what that means? <laughs> well, reach out to one of us today to ask. This room is full of saints, followers of Jesus, who would love to, to explain and take time to talk with you about what it means to be adopted as a son or a daughter of God. Is it because you distrust family because of a hurtful past? Maybe you had an abusive father. Maybe your family has abandoned you. And maybe for that reason you're going, I don't really know if I like this whole adoption as sons and daughters, the family of God. I didn't have a good father. I didn't have a good family. Why would I want another one? Well then, friend, let us spend time with you pointing you to a divine father who never disappoints. Let us spend time with you pointing, pointing you to, a, to the father of all fathers, to one who is totally unlike every earthly father, even the best ones, who excels even them in love and grace and kindness and forgiveness. Brothers and sisters, and I don't mean that as a throwaway term, God has committed us to himself as children through Christ. He has adopted us into his family. Let us then avail ourselves of the privilege of calling him Father. And may we live out the fullness of of the bond of family that God has bestowed upon us in Christ. He has made a commitment to add us to a spiritual family as we have trusted Jesus. So now, knowing that we have those family obligations, knowing that we have those brothers and sisters that surround us week by week, day by day, through faith in Christ with bonds deeper than that of blood, let's live that way. Will you pray with me?